for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. It's hard enough for you to change your diet or your lifestyle to become healthier all by yourself. But if you're part of a relationship, it can get even more complicated. That's why I wanted to talk to today's guest, Dr. Susan Orenstein, who's a clinical psychologist, couples therapist and longtime friend. She's been on the podcast before episode 217, where we talked about creating a safe couple bubble. And today we're looking at kind of the flip side of that. She's got a new podcast called After the First Marriage, which is all about learning from relationships that have ended. She points out that if we don't take stock, do postmortems and figure out what we can learn about ourselves from old relationships, we're likely to continue making the same mistakes into the future. And I was specifically interested in how difficult relationships can navigate things like somebody wants to get healthier or somebody wants their spouse or partner to get healthier. And how do we navigate that without making things worse? So in our conversation, I share some of the typical things that I see in my clients when they're talking about difficulties in their relationships. And Dr. Orenstein helps me brainstorm possible approaches to them. So I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, Dr. Susan Orenstein, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. It's been a while, but um, I'm so delighted to be here, Howie. Thank you. Yeah, let's let's you know, it's, it's the end of 20. 20. So let's talk about divorce. Okay, let's, let's sure. go. out. Let's go out on a happy note. Other happy topics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for some people, divorce actually is a happy topic. It can be. If it, yes. Right. So um, I mean, our interest in this was we've been chatting about sort of the, the, the interplay between the people that I work with who sometimes get better, like they start improving their health and they realize that they've been putting up with things that they don't want to put up with. They want, you know, a new relationship, a fresh start. Or in some cases, as you said, like their their partner might be healthy and they're feeling bad about themselves and they pull away and like, you know. So let's, you know, before we get into kind of my interests around health and well-being, um, so you 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 have a new podcast, right? That's all of that. So so tell us about the podcast and how you have sort of transitioned your career into this topic because you, you've been doing other stuff before this, right? Sure, sure. So the name of my podcast is After the First Marriage. Um, I'm a psychologist in private practice, and I've been working with individuals and couples around relationship issues um, the whole time um, for over 20 years. And I've, I've noticed over the years, some of my very favorite clients have been pe uh, people who are going through a divorce and just can't hold their head up. They feel so miserable. And then through the course of their own hard work and some support and guidance by, by me and other, other resources, I get to see them blossom. And so I just love working with, with these people after the first marriage. So they have a better chance for, for happiness in the future. Mm. So, but to focus specifically on divorce is, uh, you know, like oh, I work with relationships. It's almost like like some part of my brain goes, oh, I work with like relationships that don't work, right? Well, it's very interesting, Howie, because after the first marriage, I help I help people with divorce to do a postmortem on their first marriage so that their second marriage will stick. Mm. So it's it's actually in helping people with divorce, I feel like I'm being very 
helping them be very proactive about their future and giving them a better chance for happiness. Because as we know, second marriages, third marriages, um, the incidence of divorce increases. So generally left to people's own devices, they don't learn, uh, they don't process the divorce and they end up in another marriage that has a higher incidence of divorce. Uh So it it actually, I am um, pro-relationship, pro-marriage and sometimes a really good divorce can help set people up for a good marriage in their future. I know it sounds strange. (laughs) Well, I mean, to me, it sounds just like, oh, I made a mistake. I ate the wrong thing or I forgot, you know, I didn't do my workout and I'm paying a price for it. And can I learn from that? Or am I going to spiral into, you know, I just ate an Oreo cookie. So now I'm going to polish off the whole sleeve and maybe the entire box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, like once you've eaten the first cookie, it's really easy to eat the others. And I'm always like, once, once you've gotten a divorce, like uh, there's probably more stigma and resistance to a first divorce. And like, once you've done it, you're like, oh, mm. like, like maybe, you know, already this broken is, the taboo. Yeah, like yeah. Ah, second, third, fourth. But it's interesting to think of it in terms of not having learned the lessons. Mm-hmm. So like when, when someone um, is divorced without your help or like on their own, what are the wrong lessons that people learn from, from a failed marriage? I, I don't even know if a failed marriage is the right word or a marriage that they've terminated. Let's right. Great question. What are the wrong lessons? The wrong lessons um, are often single, singularly focused. Either it's all his or her fault or it's all my fault. Uh, you know, I wasn't good enough. I, I screw this up. I'm such a terrible person. I wasn't worthy, you know, or like what I was saying before, or that SOB, um, she did this, he did this. I I think the answer for most people is somewhere in the relationship. And I think people don't generally think in relational terms. So what I help people think about is what did we as a couple do wrong? What lessons did we not um, absorb? What did we even not even know about, um, maybe we didn't even know that we could be a two-person system that wasn't even on our radar screen. So I teach people what that means to be a two-person system and, and how to, how to create a successful, secure functioning relationship. And I'm using attachment terms. We might talk about that later. Some of your listeners might know about that. Uh, Well, can we talk about it now? We can, we can. Great. So, so what, what do you mean by attachment and, uh, Okay, so this is really juicy stuff. So in childhood, um, there's there are a lot of theorists and researchers who have talked about childhood attachment, how that how a child attaches to their primary caregiver. And when a child is what we call securely attached, then they know that the, uh, that their caregiver is going to be attuned to their needs, not a hundred percent attuned, but more attuned than less to to be able to respond to them when they cry, to be able to give them support, to give them comfort and to be reliable, to be there. And again, not to always get it right. So if you think about a mother child, a mother hears the baby cry, goes and feeds the baby, attempts to, and the baby keeps crying. So she didn't get it right the first time, but a a caring, supportive mother will then try to do something else and Mm -hmm. keep trying and keep trying. And, And so the baby learns that, the world is safe, that there are friendly people out there that are going to be there for them, you know, and again, not perfectly, but 
be there for them. Uh-huh. It sounds like by be there for them, you mean like in active communication. Like yeah. even if I'm not getting it right, baby can tell I'm like there, I'm trying, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Right. That I and, see you, that I hear you, that I care about you, that you're, you, you matter to me. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, now, you know, I would think that the percentage of parents who don't try to do that is exceedingly low, right? But the number of children who are brought up without secure attachment is pretty high. So right. where, where's, the, where's the gap? That is, it's very interesting and intriguing. So what we, the research tells us that about 50% of um, children grow up with sec- developing a secure attachment, meaning they grew up having a caregiver um, that was there, that was good enough. Um, so the other 50%, it, it, would, it wouldn't necessarily be because the parent didn't try. It could be the parent was preoccupied with having uh, like poverty, had two jobs to go to and um, or maybe their own illness or their own addiction. Um, maybe there was some kind of abuse. Maybe it, was, it doesn't have to be 100% because of the parent. It could be a child who has a lot of illnesses, maybe has been hospitalized a lot as a child and, and has a hard time developing that secure attachment because mm. of the trauma um, outside of the parent relationship. So it's, it's not always because there's the, the mother child. It can be a little more complex than that. But we know about 50% of the population grows up with secure functioning attachment, which I think is pretty good or pretty bad. Mm. It's 50%. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> Yeah, I, was, I wonder if that uh, divides on party lines for national elections. I don't, it may be. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's leave that there. Yes. Uh, so how do you know? Like, you know, so let's say you're you're not in the in a clinical setting. You're just, you know, walking down the street at a party, um, talking to people. Are there hints about whether someone was securely attached as a child or can we can we kind of camouflage it? Well, there are, so there are other attachment styles besides secure functioning. There are a few other ones and people can read about this if, if they want. Um, Diane Poole Heller wrote a really good book about attachment. Um, there's a book, I think it's by Amir Levine called Attached. Uh, so there's some really good books for lay people that talk about um, other kinds of attachment and the two broad camps, if I can use broad brushstrokes would be people who, um, really seek comfort through themselves. They don't reach out for support. They kind of have the mindset of, I'm going to do it myself. Um, Maybe we could think of them as super, they value independence. Uh, Mm -hmm. It could be the, uh, well, when you bring up politics, it could be the, 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 um, the declaration of independence, you know, this, this idea that America is this place where we, um, can pull ourselves up by the boots of our bootstraps. And just one person can do that. And uh, Diane Poole Heller said, really, she thinks we should call it the uh, declaration of interdependence because mm. that would be so much healthier. <laughs> so um, there's, there's a group of people who really believes in this independence and they, um, they're quick to dismiss their own feelings. They're quick to dismiss other people's feelings. They want other people to like grin and bear it, pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They're not big lovers of feelings. Um, and then there's another camp and they really seek comfort from other people. Um, 
they might do it to the extent where it seems clingy or it could seem whiny or naggy or, or negative. Um, Cause those people can be really, when they don't get their needs met and you think of a baby not getting their needs met um, they would just protest a lot and their protests often worked. So they've been mm-hmm. trained in a young age just to speak up, to protest. Um, but they're used to sometimes getting what they want. Sometimes they don't. So I think you asked it like at a cocktail party, how would we know who's whom? Um, that might be a good uh, parlor game. But I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, and, and I imagine it's fairly um, unpredictable with like what kind of parenting produces what kind of, of reaction. Like, you know, if, if I'm not getting my needs met, as a small child, one way I could flip into becoming really extra clingy and trying to get them met by, you know, the, the mailman, the, you know, everybody. Or I could say, well, I'm, I'm on my own here. Yes. No one's going to come. No one's going to like, so, so it's, it's, I'm imagining it's some sort of combination of environment and a person's innate characteristics. That's right. That's right. And it's, it's just a really, it's a brilliant coping strategy for children because they figure out a way of the world that, that, that they can manage that makes sense to them. Um, The problem is when they become an adult, uh, it can lead to tumultuous relationships. So the good news, Howie, is that whatever attachment style you were raised with, you can learn secure attachment and you can create a secure attachment in your intimate, um, partner relationship wherever Hmm. you can't wherever you start you can still get there Uh uh-huh gotcha so is divorce essentially an issue of the the 50 percent who aren't securely attached um I think that is that is a really good question. I don't think it's that simple. I don't think we have data on that to know but I know I've seen secure functioning partners in my practice and they could still have some problems they could have um so they could grow up feeling secure learning how to comfort each other learning how to be in a healthy relationship with someone but there might be deal breakers that they they just come to when they they come to later in their marriage or um maybe one of them wants kids and the other one doesn't or maybe one gets an opportunity for some job overseas and the other person has never wanted that and so there are other reasons people mm. get divorced that could be, you know, just, just, um, mm-hmm. I don't, yeah, not, not really mm-hmm. because of personality, but because of incompatibility. Gotcha. But it sounds like those aren't the people who need a lot of help doing postmortems. Like I refuse to move to Venezuela. <laughs> like, okay, next time pick someone who's not likely. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. right. Okay. So, so if we have these attachment styles and so we're 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 presumably mostly unaware of them we think whatever we're doing in our experiences is normal and so we do we then like laser in on people who you know match our style or remind us of our parent or remind us of the opposite of our parent like what's what's the the cybernetic of attraction that gets us into trouble well, well, oftentimes we seek what's familiar. So it's it's really not uncommon at all when um, I will meet with a couple and they'll each have, have like a, a sibling five years younger who had a serious illness when they were children. 
or hmm. they'll each have a parent that um, became sick or addicted to something when they were 12. So I, I think there's this familiarity that people have and that they, they can see each other and, and that helps them feel connected. So, um, but, but you can see uh, the, the people who are more, uh, I can do it myself, the independent, sometimes they get together, sometimes the more uh, codependents get together and sometimes there's a mixture. So it, it can come in any kind of flavor. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. But it's but I'm imagining like at first it seems like the other person is the solution to some kind of problem. Like if I'm clingy and I've chased people away my whole life, and then I meet someone as clingy as me, and I go, Great, they'll never abandon me. <laughs> right? Like I remember like listening to uh, Gabor Mate talking about like the, the issue of, of addiction. And he said, you know, if, if, if addiction were about the thing you were doing, then sex addicts would be fine because they would just find each other. Yeah. Right? So it's obviously that the, the, somehow that the thing you think is going to solve the problem doesn't solve the problem. But is that is that kind of how it works that you'd look, you say, well, this person is going to meet my insatiable need for X? I, I Yes, but I, I don't think it's really conscious. Um, and it's so interesting because the first year when we, we get in that love haze and we fall in love, there's so many chemicals going on. And so <laughs> a lot of times there's a lot of sexual chemistry. And so it's really interesting how people pick people. Um, so I think some of it's familiarity. Some of it might be, I'm going to pick the wound, uh, you know, so that in, in a great marriage, people can heal together with, with mm. they'll each have their own wounds that, um, that fit just right. So they can do the work together. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, that to me sounds like the, the crux of it, that there's, there's no perfect marriage. There's no marriage where, where perfect people are coming in completely unwounded. And the, the marriage is either going to be um, a dance of healing or a dance of destruction or, or a sort of long, drawn-out detente until, until death. Beautifully, beautifully put. Beautifully put. And and I think you're right. Everyone comes from baggage. And so my mentor, Stan Tatkin, says there's no such thing as a, a low maintenance person. That, <laughs> um, that everyone's high maintenance. You just need to choose which high maintenance you get. And I, I, I faked it really well. Though. <laughs> I, I, had, I had a low maintenance disguise on for many years. That's true. And I've also heard like with affair partners or long distance partners like that, um, that through lust, like from afar, um, things look a certain way, but then up close, that's, that's where mm -hmm. you can see the real, the real work. Right. Well, I guess you talk, I love this phrase, the, the, the love haze, um, of, of, uh, you know, brought about by chemistry, the, that it kind of covers everything. Right. That's like a really good French sauce. It doesn't matter like what kind of crap you have underneath the first <laughs> the first bunch of bites are going to be yummy, you know, like, yeah. you know, rich and, and flavorful. Um, That's like right. is 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 that is that part of the issue that then so a divorced person will then meet someone else and all of a sudden, oh, my God, this is what I've been missing. Like this person is so wonderful. That person was so terrible. Like they've, I've solved my problems because I'm so like, this is the one. 
So I think, are you talking about you're in a marriage and then somebody else looks attractive? Is that what? Well, I said like, I'm like, like after divorce. Oh, I see. Like, so the second, the person you see is somehow uh -huh. in, in either real or superficial ways different Absolutely. and you're attracted to them. And so all of a sudden it's like, ah, the, the problem with my last marriage was them. And now I've solved it. Yes. So I think there was some research showing when women have their second marriage, they go for someone exactly opposite of their first partner. And for men, it could be anything. I, I don't know why that is, but um, I think in the first year or two of dating with your first marriage or your second marriage or your third, fourth, fifth, there's that, that love haze and there's this illusionment and it takes a year or two for the disillusionment to happen. And so I think people, that's when people need to decide if they're compatible for each other when, when the sauce is gone. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah. um, and I guess, you know, that when you say illusionment, then the opposite of that, of course, is disillusionment, which has a negative connotation. But when I think about the word, it's pretty positive. Like I no longer have illusions. Like I'm looking at reality. Um, like, like there's an opportunity there. That's true. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how, how do, how do we post mortem in, re, in relational terms? And, and, you know, do you, are you typically working with the, with the divorced couple or with an individual who's, you know, licking the wounds of divorce and, and you, they're the only one telling you the story? Yeah. So both. So sometimes I work with couples and there's some betrayal, like an affair and in a way that's a postmortem because they're going to bury their first marriage and they might stay together and have a second marriage with each other. Hmm. Um, so, so I would help people after the first marriage, although they're still legally married, if that, if that makes sense. And then I see just individuals going through divorce um, and, and we do the postmortems. And so I think it's helpful for everybody to really learn what the heck did I just go mm -hmm. through and how can I make sure to choose wisely and how can I have the skills I need for intimacy so that I can have a beautiful path forward? Uh -huh. Gosh, I mean, what I'm thinking is like everybody I know who goes, who works in a company has annual performance reviews. Uh, and, you know, you play on a sports team, you have a coach, they'll tell you after every game or every play or every season what you've done wrong and what you can improve. Like, like it seems to me like I could really like, you know, Postmortem like sounds really good. Like after like every year, like to to be able to like whether it's divorce or struggling or loving or not, it seems like it'd be a very useful um, discipline to try to learn from a relationship. I think that's right. That's right. And and I even tell couples at the end of each day to well, especially when they're coming off of some real difficulty, it's just to say, "How are we doing?" How are mm. we to have conversations about we? Yeah. Mm. So, uh, so many people are afraid of that. So if you're, if you're raising it with insecure functioning, you're raised in a system where people didn't have explicit agreements. People weren't sensitive to each other. People didn't make sure things were fair. People were just surviving. And so, um, you know, I teach people what it means to be in a secure functioning environment where Things are transparent. People feel safe, and and people feel safe to talk about their relationship in in without worrying that they're going to be attacked or judged. Mm -hmm. That sounds hard. In that 
you can set up the rules and people can agree to it. But when they get angry, like it's very easy to betray the safety, especially like if, if, if my partner is being vulnerable in a way that you taught her, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, the way she did not learn as a child, the way she learned from you. And then I take advantage of that vulnerability because I'm really hurt by something she said. Like, how do you, how do you build safety into a, a system that is, is already built on these ticking time bombs? So it's a great question. I, I'm so glad you asked that because we are not perfect and we are going to act um, stupid. We're going to act thoughtless, selfish. We're going to um, try to protect our own interests. And sometimes we may protect our own interests at the stake of our relationship. And that can really look dangerous to our partners. So we have to be really, um, really get good at the skill of apologizing and, and not an apology like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lie prostrate and say I'm the worst person ever. And uh, it's all about shame. No, it's about, I'm sorry, I hurt you. That was insensitive of me. Let me try again. And and so Mm. just be able to repair quickly. Um, And because we're all, yes, we're all absolutely going to take advantage of each other and we need to be able to, to repair that quickly. Hmm. Yeah. Um, do, do you, do you find that, that couples compete to be good at this? Like, in- <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. Um, uh, probably I can't think of something that, that comes to mind, but, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, sometimes people will, will, Maybe they'll say I'm trying and you're not or something like that. But but that's sort of sort of the message, too, is that their job as a good partner is to help lift the other one up and to support the other person. So it's it's always like um, if you think about in the we used to have Derby Day in school or, you know, the fair where you're have the three legged race. Is, is it called? the What is is it? Yeah. Three legged race where the two uh-huh. your inner your inner leg and their outer leg are tied together. So so if if somebody is trying to prove their partner wrong to me in a session or, or in life, then really they're hurting themselves if they're a two-person system. Because if you think about the three-legged race, if your partner's on the ground, it's a lot harder for you to run. You have to help make sure they're standing up and run together. Uh-huh. God, that's a great, that's a great imagery. <laughs> um, so, so, wait, wait, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So when people are getting divorced, um, and if they grew up in a, a family where their parents were divorced where their parents didn't understand what a two person system was like, how would they get that? So a lot of the work um, that I'm trying to do on my podcast and just to share with, with individuals is there is such a thing, the declaration of interdependence where you're better off. um, You know, there's a synergy. And so one plus one is a lot more than two. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And when you ask that question, like, where would they learn that? Like, where do we learn about relationships outside of our homes? It's sort of through popular culture, mm-hmm. right? Through, through, you know, love actually movies and, and pop songs. Um, and I'm trying, I'm trying to think of some realistic ones. <laughs> There's, they're, they're, they're not popping to mind. So I like some of the new shows that are messier. Um, I don't know if you've seen, I mean, I like some, some of the British comedies that are really messy. 
um, like catastrophe. Did you ever see that? No. It is hysterical and, and they, they can be brutal. And so I'm not recommending that people are, you know, it is a show and, and they're really out of line. But what I love about that show is they're really good at repair. They're really mm. good at making up and saying they're sorry and getting back together. And, and it's a funny show too. Huh. <laughs> but it's, it's not the, it. the um, you know, Photoshop view of, of relationships. It's, it, it's gritty. Yeah. Right. All right. I'll, I'll throw in one show that I've been I've been touting to everyone for the past month called Ted Lasso. Um, I, I told Rafi about it. I don't know if you guys <laughs> have, have seen it yet, but the the subplot of the entire first season is his, his divorce. Oh. And he's a guy who's you know fish out of water in a different culture, trying to win them over. And in his job, he's just brilliant. And he's all like, he's the master psychologist. And yet in his, you see all this uh, in his own life where he is confused, he's hurt, he's alienated, he's marginalized and how he try, you know, how he struggles to apply all of his psychological brilliance to his own relationship. That sounds awesome. Mm. I definitely want to, I want to look, look up that one. That's fun. Um, but let's like, can I throw in some like some uh, scenarios of first marriage? Um, let's Please. say like this kind of you know, sort of comes from my experience working with people, where um, typically the woman feels um, under unvalued and put. She's gained weight. She's you know she hasn't lost the childbirth weight. She's her husband makes her feel fat. And disgusting, is that, you know. That's that's the story that she will tell. Um, how like I don't you know don't know what's going on. Don't know him. Don't know the relationship. Just have this story. If you were working with that woman, what are the lessons that she could draw from her first marriage to be more successful in the next one? Um. So, is, this, so, is this an illegal question? Ask a therapist because you want you'd want to actually have her and like. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah. we can we can kind of throw around ideas and and yeah, everybody's different. But are you you're saying that this person gets divorced? Yeah, divorced, gotcha. and and says you know my husband's a pig. He you know he didn't he, he would tell every time I went to eat something he'd say you can eat that, like constantly judging. She feels terrible about herself, is finally out of the relationship, still feels ter- terrible about herself, wants to go on dates and doesn't want to post her picture to Tinder. Right. right. Like wh- where, where's, where is healing for her? Right. Um, that's a really interesting scenario. I would be curious about a few things. One is I would be curious to know if she ever confided in her husband, her, her first husband, what that felt like if she ever was, and it would take some vulnerability, but just not to say in anger, cut it out, you jerk, but to say, you know, honey, this is something that really hurts me. Um, it's not helpful when you say these things, Uh, I would love, if you really want to support me, here's how you can do that. Let's talk about that. And so I'd be curious to know if she could have that conversation with him. And if, if, so was a barrier, her being able to feel value, value herself enough to speak up. Mm. So that's part one. And if, if she could do that, then part two is, um, 
did she pick somebody with, who was sensitive enough and cared enough to listen? Hmm. And so in the second, second marriage or in the dating second go round, I'd want to make sure that she really had a voice to share her feelings with somebody and to find somebody who was sensitive, sensitive enough that wanted to work with her and whoever she marries, like we said, everybody's high maintenance. Um, she'd want somebody who could also be vulnerable with her about their, their issues. Maybe it's not food, but believe me, it's something so that <laughs> she could, she could be supporting them. So it would be balanced. Maybe they're a procrastinator or maybe they have um, a hard time getting along with people and she's really good at that. And so that would balance it out. So it's, it's not like she'd pick somebody who's only going to support her. She'd be supporting them as well. Mm. So it's like saying that the, the one of the core lessons of that marriage might be it's shining a spotlight on her need to value herself. And yes, her need to value herself and to and in valuing herself, speaking up for herself, having a voice to her partner. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like, you know, the like the the image of like the mama bear protecting her cubs, like being, you know, mothers are famous for being fierce and defensive children, but to, to view yourself as someone worthy of your protection and, and um, acknowledge, acknowledgement and, and, and voice. Right. And that's really good in a two person system. You want both people to be strong and to value themselves. Um, you, you, you don't win by having a partner who's always going to cave. Like, like we said, we need both people to get to the finish line and and be strong. Mm -hmm. So she'd be doing not only a favor to herself for standing up for herself, but to her future relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and let's say for the, the, and it could be a woman or a man, but you know, typically what I'm getting to statistically is women who come to me with this issue. The woman who's in that, in that marriage, but is not thinking about divorce. Um, so like, would like to hear how to begin to see if this marriage itself is, is reparable. Mm -hmm. Would it be just, just to, to, to learn how to confide, to, to make an offer of vulnerability? Yes. Um, and, and that, that is knowing whether your partner's trustworthy or not. So I wouldn't want someone to put themselves in that situation and be shamed or judged and then to keep doing that. So I, mm -hmm. I want people to protect themselves. But um, if you're not sure, then, then it would take a risk of who am I married to and can I be vulnerable or not? Um, so maybe in this case, her partner had a, had a little more to give if he or she um, was more aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing I'd be curious about Howie and I'm uh, um is how that impacts their intimacy and not only their emotional intimacy, but their sex life. So I, I'd be curious about how satisfied she is, how satisfied the partner is. Do, do body image issues get in the way? Um, sometimes a partner can get upset about somebody else being overweight, not um, maybe because it is the overweight piece and the aesthetic piece, but often it's because they feel that their person is inhibited and doesn't feel good about themselves. So um, it could be, there could be a conversation where her partner would really want her to develop some self-confidence. And maybe there's some ways that they, they could shake up their sex life in different ways that would be comfortable, um, comfortable knowing she has body image issues. There's all kinds of things people can talk about and do. Hmm. 
Okay. Yeah, and that's and that's one area as a as a health coach I don't really touch on with people. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm imagining what they would say if I said, "So how's your sex life?" But I, you know, I don't do it. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's take the other um, an, another common thing that comes to me is that one of the partners is, is the other one is like really upset with their spouse for being unhealthy, for making bad choices all the time. And let's say it's not simply aesthetics, but I care about them. I hate to think, you know, they're, they're on two ty ty diabetes meds. They're still eating like shit. Whenever I say anything or try to be helpful, they get hurt. So I just clam up and they still feel judged when they eat something, even if I'm trying my hardest not to say anything. Um, what, are, what are the lessons from, like, from that angle? And then that is when people are still in that marriage? Either either in or I'm out and I'm looking for the next one. Yes, yes. Right, so whatever, whatever second marriage it happens to be. Yeah. So I think knowing our limits. So sometimes there, there does have to be some acceptance. Like here's what I, I, I think it's kind of the 12-step motto uh, or the serenity prayer, which is, let me know what I can change and, and um, what I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So, um, so it could be, okay, this is my partner's decision. And we've had these conversations. They know that I'm offering to be supportive and, and there's really nothing else. And I think acceptance would be what's left. And if somebody can't have that acceptance, um, sometimes that is a deal breaker. So for instance, with, it's not uncommon for people who maybe their partner is doing something that they just can't, can't live with anymore, mm -hmm. like some kind of substance abuse or addictions. Maybe it, maybe it is a, you know, or, or an unhealthy lifestyle. If that's your deal breaker, then that, that could be, that could be, you know, I can't, I can't stay in a marriage with this person or I can't continue in a relationship that can't be my second husband or my second wife because mm -hmm. uh, they're not valuing or they're not, prioritizing their physical health the way I, I need them to. Mm -hmm. and that seems very valid to me. Yeah. I, I, mean, I love that word valid because I think people don't feel valid in having deal breakers. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it feels petty or selfish or, um, you know, superficial, right? Like to admit, like, you know, cause like there's such a complicated conversation in this country around body image Right. And about like fat shaming and what's acceptable and body positivity. So it's almost like I think I think there are, are people who internalize guilt around preferring a certain body type. Right. You know, especially if their spouse had that body type and no longer has it. Right. Right. Like a bait and switch. Like, hey, you know, you, you were so much hotter 20 years ago. Right. Well, it's um, when well, you also said 20 years ago. So I, it's so it's complicated in a way because we're all aging too. And maybe our sexual preferences um, might need to evolve also. So, and so in some ways, yes, it is valid. It is valid to have your sort of template, your erotic template. And as we age and as people's bodies change, we might want to um, see if there are other ways that we can get turned on or expand our, our arousal template. So I, I think both are true. Yes, it's valid. And yes, maybe you, we can expand our, our template. It just, it just depends. 
And right. I can't judge anybody for, for either of those. Yeah. And I imagine, though, that the, most of the time, as we age and our partners age, if the rest of the relationship is going well, like we can be more in love with, you know, a, a saggy 55-year-old body than, you know, the hot 24-year-old body. It, it's, it's, almost, it's not like the the physical is like the physical is a, is a symptom. Right. Our, you know, physical, our physical erotic attachment is, a, is, a, is a, a symptom of the emotional relationship as opposed to the cause of it. Right. And I, I joke with my husband that it's a good thing we're both losing our vision a little bit. So then you can't see all the wrinkles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're, yeah, we're, all, we're all wearing age goggles now. That's right. But these are complicated, nuanced, nuanced things. I, I, I think so. Yeah. So, so um, what are some, what are some other? You know, these are I'm bringing you things like from my clinical experience as a coach. What are some other things you see uh, that people that would be really useful? Let's say to to you know to my listeners who are in relationship, whether they're in a good relationship that they want to make better, or thinking of getting a divorce, or divorced and trying not to make the second or third mistake right. what, what what are what are some sort of general issues maybe you know things you bring up in your podcast after the first marriage well I'm, I'm actually gonna my mind went back to what we were talking about about somebody who might be very critical of their partner and their eating and 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 I was saying give them the benefit of the doubt speak up see if they're more sensitive than you think they are now I'm kind of thinking the opposite scenario just for a second and I'm thinking if you are with somebody who's very critical and judgmental and um, lacking sensitivity really is about always prioritizing themselves over you, maybe some gaslighting, that's really dangerous for your mental health and physical health. So if you're in a marriage like that, or you're dating somebody like that, just be careful and, and get some counseling to make sure that you are valuing yourself. Mm. So, so we want to make sure that people aren't being abused and, and this passive aggression passive aggressiveness. I'm not sure if people call it passive aggression or passive aggressiveness. Um, you know, the gaslighting thing, that's so insidious that we might really get confused about what's real and what's not real. And so, you know, get, get some outside help. And yeah, please don't, if you're in a relationship where you're feeling really bad about yourself, get some support and, and make sure you're not being mistreated because nobody deserves that. Mm. Now, I'm wondering now that, you know, given our, we joked about the election earlier, but given the U.S.'s divides that are no longer simply like, oh, you know, we're Democrats, you're Republicans, we disagree, but have really become like vitriolic, like talk about deal breakers. Um, are you seeing that in your practice? I am. Ooh, Yes. Not easy. Not easy. When, when people can't agree on the truth, whatever their truth is, um, it's like there's no more gravity. It's, it's scary. It's very disturbing. Um, so I, I think you have to find a relationship with someone where you can, you can make clear agreements and you can stand by what you say and you can keep your agreements and there's transparency and honesty and integrity. And oh my gosh, that's just the the foundation we have to have to, to, to be able to trust and, and feel secure, secure. Um, I used the word secure functioning before, but I mean, secure and safe just in our lives. Um, it's maybe it's all the same thing, which is really about 
honesty and integrity and, and trust and knowing that people care about us. It's really mm. important. Right. But, you know, but in the outside world, like we don't know what the truth is, right? Like we, you know, we have to trust people, right? Like I don't exactly know how the virus responds to a vaccine. Like I have to, right. Um, so for couples who are in, finding themselves on opposite sides of the truth divide and operating out of separate realities, does, does, do you find like, is that the deal breaker or does it also infect the relationship itself? Like, you know, you're, you know, I wasn't uh, criticizing you're too sensitive. Like, like even that is like, up for, you know, a question of truth, right? Right. Um, if my partner's hurt and I'm in a two person system, my job is to give them relief right away. So um, you can use those words about being too critical or too sensitive, but to be a two-person system is to make sure that your partner lands, you know, right side up. Um, um, and I, I think there have to be agreements. So yeah, I've see, I'm working with uh, some couples recently with different politics and maybe mask or anti-masker, but they have to come to reality to say, how are we going to keep each other safe? Literally. What are you willing to do? What are you not willing to do? And come up with agreements. And, and they have to do that. So I, mm. we get extremely explicit. Like, it's not this abstract stuff. It's what am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? And, and we're going to keep our word. Uh -huh. Boy, that's, it sounds like we could use a national therapist for that. Like when you say, like, what, what am I willing to do to keep you safe? Like... <laughs> Like, I think that's like, that's not a way that this whole mask thing or the vaccine thing has been framed, right? It's been framed in terms of my freedom to do whatever I want, ver you know, versus guilting people who aren't, as opposed to saying, this is a relationship. Right. Like, and, you know, so it's, yeah, it's interesting how the work you do is kind of the, 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 the basic Lego piece for the entire world that we're the social world we're living in yeah yes because because the foundation is is safety and trust and um how can we live in this world when we don't have a sense a sense that people are sensitive and fair like that gives us everything we need to to just keep being in relationship when we don't have that then we're constantly in this stress response of fight or flight or or freeze um, and it's, it's terrible for our health. We're in hyper arousal. We're scanning to see if we're going to get, you know, um, attacked or killed or, or shamed. Um, it's terrible for our health. It, it really is. So, um, right. And I, and I guess scanning from that place, we, we miss the, the kind offers, right. Cause they're not, like, we're, we're just looking for danger to avoid as opposed to, um, you know, I think I, I'm trying to remember you've I don't remember exactly the, the language, but sort of like kind offers like what, what's the, what what am I thinking of here? Um, I um, so John bids? Gottman is, is it bids? Yeah. John Gottman talks about bids for attention okay. uh -huh. and um, some other uh, clinicians talk about having soft eyes and, and that really our social engagement system is in eye to eye and in our tone of voice and being in that place of social engagement where there's safety and security and the bids for attention mean that if your partner 
that you're attuned, that you're not going to miss something because you're up mm-hmm. close and personal, um, mm-hmm. being able to see that. Gotcha. So I'm going to give you one, one more marriage template, um, which is a couple that's not going to get divorced. And because and they're not going to get divorced because they're playing it safe. So they're not really getting their needs met. They're not optimally happy. There's these simmering fights that they've decided to stop fighting. But, you know, and, and things are fine, in air quotes. But they're sort of running out the clock. And, what, and, and someone's listening and says, boy, I want more than that. Yeah. What, 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 are, what are the steps? Um, the steps are, I think really it, it takes an act of courage to say to your partner, like, I think, I think we can have more than this. I want, I want to be able to dream with you. I want to be able to build with you. Life's too short. Um, you know, come hold my hand. You want to do this together and, and perhaps get like, um, some really good material about couples work, like, uh, Stan Tatkin writes Wired for Love. John Gottman writes Seven Principles to Make Marriage Work, I think is the name of his. Um, go to a couples therapist. You can get some really good couples counseling. Um, you know, go five to six sessions. It, it's not a lifetime where you, you have to go every week for, for years and years. It's um, probably costs the price of a new refrigerator. I'm, I'm not sure I'd have to do the math. <laughs> but, but, um, Dep- depends if it has the filter for the ice tray, right? That's true. That's true. Um, but, but you might be pleasantly surprised to, to hear your partner say, oh, I didn't, I thought maybe you didn't care. This, this is mm. great. Let's, let's work on things together. Let's, let's build our sex life. Let's develop some, some dreams. Let's, let's have a, a mission statement for our, our marriage. Let's have a, uh, 2.0, like after mm. the first marriage, let's have our own upgrade. And <laughs> I, I think people need to do that. Um, like, like if we're not growing, we're dying. So I, I think every couple really needs to be thinking about how to nurture their relationship, how to invest, how to spice things up, um, how to look at each other and go, how are we doing? It's so important. So I'm glad you asked that question. Okay, great. Yeah, because, um, you know, in, in the um behavioral in the lifestyle medicine world we talk about you know nutrition and sleep and exercise and uh, stress and social support but we don't we don't really talk explicitly about relationship and specifically you know like the, the erotic parts of the relationship there's very there's very little talk about how's your sex life about you know how's your intimacy with another human being. And I think it's, you know, there's, there's prudish reasons for it and uh, lack of training reasons for it. But I think, you know, we've, we're seeing that loneliness, whether it's physical or psychological, is a bigger killer than cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah. And being having having somebody to have sex with, having somebody to laugh with, having somebody to check to see if you have moles on your back, like like we we're like monkeys too. We need to groom each other. So <laughs> like like we need uh, we need other people in our lives. We're we're wired to bond like that. Right. Very good. I appreciate you bringing that up. That's your yeah. thing. And how we. Uh, I'm I'm so glad that you invited me today. It's been fun. 
Yeah, I hope this is useful for for folks who are thinking about the stuff I'm thinking about because it's not a topic that we've really brought into. Like, you know, it's amazing me these days how many things are important that I haven't thought about. Like, like two weeks ago, I had someone on the podcast talking about house plants. They're like, "Oh, this is a plant yourself podcast." I've loved, I never thought about house plants, and now you know, thinking about like relational social health, and really never, not really ever talking about you know, love, sex, intimacy recovery in a marriage. This is so such crucial stuff. So are you can you work with couples outside of North Carolina? Or is it like who if someone's like, like really wants to find out more about what you do and maybe work with you? Uh, who, who gets to? Who gets to? So I'm licensed in North Carolina, so I can only work in North Carolina, but they are changing the laws as of next year where you can, there's a certain states where it's going to be reciprocal. I think there might be 12 or 13 states. So if you're in one of those states, I'll be able to work with you. Um, and in the meantime, I have a free e-course. Um, if you go to my website, afterthefirstmarriage.com, that has some some ideas. Um, I have blogs, I have my podcast. And if individuals want to contact me, if I can't work with them, I can help them find some good resources. So I, I want to be able to support anybody who's listening today. Awesome. So it's afterthefirstmarriage.com and they can find the podcast and the free e-course and everything else from there. That's right. Awesome. Well, Sue, thank you so much. It's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you and it's especially a pleasure to talk to you professionally because we, we rarely do. So it's kind of like, oh, so that's what she's up to. That's true. Yeah. So uh, yeah, maybe we'll go, maybe we'll go for a, a socially distanced hike one of these days. Anytime at all the time. That's that's keeping me set. We didn't talk about nature, but you talked about plants and oh my gosh, I love these days. I love getting outside. So yeah, yeah go for a walk. Thank you. Talk to you later. All right. Hope you found that useful. If you want more about Dr. Orenstein or some of the books that we mentioned, you can find all that in the show notes at plantyourself.com slash four four five. So what do we got going on in running news? I um I stopped running to really focus on yoga and what's called base BASE, which stands for a bunch of things, alignment, uh, extension, stability. I'm not sure. It's through the uh, Monkey Bar Gym of Madison, Wisconsin, which is now the Monkey Bar Gym of the Internet, since they are virtual only. And my old pals, John and Jesse Hines, have been kicking my ass, teaching me how to get back into alignment, how to move with uh, precision and power and strength. And it's been great. But I also um, ran this morning four miles, four miles um, yesterday. So I'm starting to reintegrate, feeling much better in the running now that I'm really working on muscles and alignment and core and all that other good stuff. Garden News had a smoothie yesterday with Garden Greens. Uh, the ground is really, really soggy. So you need kind of your hip waders to get in there and harvest. And Mia and I took a walk on the uh, tobacco trail over the weekend and harvested what, what may be turkey tail mushrooms um, or maybe death. We're not sure yet. And um, some uh, usnea, which is, a, I guess, some kind of saprophytic sort of lichen-y, ferny thing that grows on tree branches uh, that she turns into medicine. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.